0: Oh my gosh, so totally fun to be back with you on the podcast. I know I've had a little bit of a break. As I have been getting my life back into some form of balance after everything that went on last year, I've been still just taking some space to bring it all together. So the podcast will now be on an every other week release date with a guest once a month, and an episode from me once a month. And today I have the joy of introducing you to Sarah Kusera. She is an Ayurvedic practitioner, a chiropractor, and the author of a brand new book, The Ayurveda Self-Care Handbook. I am not kidding. This is the prettiest book I think I have, like, ever seen. Go and check it out. It is so gorgeous. And it is full of so much information. Blows my mind. Before I met Sarah, I didn't know anything about Ayurveda, which she describes as the medical side that goes along with yoga. She talks about the importance of our natural rhythms and living in sync with nature, and she has so many wonderful tips of how we can take better care of ourselves in a holistic and natural way. We talk about doshas and all the other questions I have about Ayurveda. If you don't know much about Ayurveda, or if you do know a bunch, I'm sure you'll find this podcast fascinating. As a side note, I want to connect with you more. I use the hashtag here thrive on Instagram, and I would love if this community could start using that hashtag too so I can find you over there. here thrive hashtag that. And then we can find other like-minded souls. Also, I just noticed that here to thrive has 99 reviews in the iTunes store in America. Can we make that 100 people I would love to hear how Here to Thrive has impacted your life. So if you have a couple of minutes, it would mean so much if you could go over and hit that review tab for me. But without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to Sarah Cousera. Welcome to Here to Thrive. I'm your host, Kate Snowwise. This is a podcast for people who are ready to step up and live a happier life. It's for those of us who are dedicated to understanding ourselves and getting the best that we can out of this thing called life. It's a mix of psychology and modern spiritual thought, always with a focus on practical advice so that you can take it back and apply it to your own life. I don't believe we're here to merely survive. I truly believe we're here to thrive. So let's get going. I'm so excited to have you on the show. Thank you for coming to talk to us about Ayurveda. Thank you. I'm super excited. Can we start with the obvious question? Because until I met you, I didn't know what Ayurveda was. So can you start there?
1: So Ayurveda is... First I'll say that it's often considered the sister science to yoga. And I mention that because a lot of people come to Ayurveda from their yoga practice, which is also how I discovered Ayurveda. But the longer definition is that Ayurveda is a full system of medicine, which is from India, it's from South India, and it's based in nature. And by that I mean that it's strongly considering that we are a part of nature, And that when we sway from anything that's cyclical within nature or even things such as our instincts, we can become unwell. And thus, because of this and because of the natural qualities, the healing methods are also based in a more natural method, such as using herbal therapies or diet or lifestyle to make changes.
0: So when you talk about becoming unwell, that would be like physical health as well as our mental well-being, like all of it?
1: It is all of it. So it's all-encompassing. Ayurveda has branches of medicine just like our Western medicine does. It's a little more inclusive, in fact, because there are also branches which consider things like astrology. So there's a Vedic astrology portion within Ayurveda. And there's also something that's very similar to feng shui or feng shui. So talking even about the space, like our environment, our physical environment. So it really is not just our physical well-being, but it's our emotional well-being, our mental well-being, and just the whole the whole picture. So how did
0: you find Ayurveda? Can we learn a little bit more about you and your journey? You mentioned yoga, but I know you're a chiropractor as well. So can we talk a little bit about how you got to where you are today?
1: I, you're right, I am a chiropractor And before I went to chiropractic school, I was already practicing and teaching yoga. So throughout chiropractic college, I was still uh, very, very much a yoga, strong yoga practitioner. And I kept seeing all the ways that yoga could benefit my chiropractic practice. So once I graduated chiropractic college, I knew that I wanted to integrate those two practices together. And so immediately I was already practicing yoga and chiropractic in a way where they complemented one another. And while I was doing that, I attended a workshop on Ayurveda and realized how Ayurveda could really be a bridge between my chiropractic practice and my yoga practice. And I'll explain more about that, because as a chiropractor, this is something that maybe people don't really know much about, The I like the chiropractic education, Western medicine, of course, and We have a lot of the same clinical sciences and basic sciences that medical doctors do. So, to pass board exams, we have to do things like ear exams, eye exams. We have to have, we do pelvic exams. (laughs) So fascinating.
0: When you told me this, I was like,
1: really? Right, right. So, yeah, it sounds a little unusual because most people don't think, you know, I'm going to go to my chiropractor because I need a pelvic exam. And I'll say that I'm not doing pelvic exams in my own practice. (laughs) And actually, some states don't even allow it. So the scope of practice is very different from state to state as a chiropractor. But because I wasn't really interested in using chiropractic methods to treat those things, I felt like there was a little bit of a gap. And I don't want to say that chiropractic care can't treat those things. It's just that that wasn't the, the philosophy that I was was going along with. I was more interested in the musculoskeletal system and the things that could happen Um, to improve our movement and and basically like biomechanics and things. So when I discovered that Ayurveda really had this this way of treating some of the things that I learned about, but in a way that was very holistic and natural, I I was clinging to it. So it kind of married the two things. And I should also say that yoga, we talk about being more of a practice of the mind, even though... In our Western culture, we've taken yoga as just being the physical practice in many cases. So we th- when we think of yoga, we picture someone sitting a certain way or like standing in a balancing posture, but yoga is about turning inward. So as yoga is a practice of the mind, and chiropractic is very much a practice of, like for me, I'm using it as a practice as the physical body, Ayurveda, as it considers both energetic and physical was just the natural stepping stone between the two.
0: What did you do to learn more about Ayurveda? Because I feel like it's becoming increasingly popular now. I've only heard about it in the last couple of years, but I know you were studying it well before that.
1: Hmm. I live in the middle of America, <laughs> where we don't have access to a lot of things that are on the coast. And... Chiropractic colleges, of course, are all over the country. Yoga schools are now all over the country, too. Ayurveda schools are not. They are mainly on the coast. There's also one in New Mexico. There are a handful of them. So I had to decide how strongly am I committed to this practice. And I think at first it was really more about me just enhancing my own my own education. I I wasn't really necessarily looking to apply it as extensively as I do now, but I was really committed to it. And so I found a school that I was able to attend once a month, which was in California. And I live in Kansas City. So I commuted once a month to California, would take a course over a three-day period. And and they were very long days. They went from um, 7 a.m. to 9 p.m., And I would do that once a month. And I did that for three and a half years. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Okay, that
0: is dedication to the Mm cause. Wow. I didn't know it had taken you that long. So you know what you're talking about now.
1: I have a master's degree now in um, Ayurveda. Yeah, there's different (laughs) levels of Ayurvedic education. Right now, it's not a licensed practice, but there are different Different organizations that are looking at accrediting different schools. And so you can be recognized by an association called NAMA, the National Ayurvedic Medicine Association, in three different categories. And right now there's Ayurvedic Health Counselor, or the AHC is what we call it, the Certified Ayurvedic Practitioner, which you call CAP, and then there's an Ayurvedic Doctor.
0: I wanted to ask you that. I was going to say, because I know it is a sort of relatively new field. And like many of the things I've seen in this kind of spiritual self-help space, I think sometimes it's hard to know who really knows their stuff and who doesn't. So we should be looking out for those kind of qualifications or accreditations.
1: Yes. And I say I say that with a little bit of hesitation. And it's only because there are people that, I would consider very credible that maybe have the lesser amount of education, but they've done different in-depth study or they are South Indian themselves. And that culture grows up with a lot of this just in like in their family. And I think that on a certain level, you could ask someone like that for advice for something very, very simple or ask them to explain a certain concept to you but when you're talking about disease management, you definitely want to see someone who has studied. We have clinical experience, so we do externships and internships, and if you haven't studied in this formal way, you probably haven't gotten much experience with, with actual patients themselves.
0: Got ya. I wanna talk about some of those concepts now because having known you, I have been introduced to some of them, but I still have so many questions. There's doshas, is that how you say it in Ayurveda? Can we talk about those? Can you give us a little bit of an introduction?
1: Yes, doshas are, we we call them constitutions, and a constitution, and in fact, there's different ways to talk about this. So your inherent constitution or your inherent dosha, we call in Sanskrit, your prakriti. And then there's a constitution that's considered to be your imbalance, which we call your vikriti. So I mention that because as I'm explaining this, you have to understand that you are always the dosha that you were conceived to be, but you might experience different imbalances that match a different dosha as you are living, right? And experiencing different things throughout your life. So your overall constitution, your inherent constitution, your dosha, your prakriti, there are three different types. One is vata, one is pitta, and one is kapha. And you would actually explain imbalances in the same way. But each of us has all of these constitutions because they are actually based on the elements. And the elements, there are five. The elements make up nature. They are ether, air, fire, water, and earth. So each dosha has two elements associated with it. The reason why we have to have all of these things is because all of these things are are governing different systems and functions in our body. So if I say something like, I don't have any fire in my constitution, that's the equivalent of me saying, I don't have a digestive system, or I don't have skin, or I don't have blood. So just like we have all the elements, we also have all the doshas. But when we're talking about someone's constitution or prakriti, We're talking about the things that are expressed the most in them. So each person will have their own unique makeup, and that's something that makes Ayurveda very unique in its own right, in that they're treating each person like an individual. So you and I might have very similar constitutions, but the expression of it might be slightly different. So these doshas are used kind of as a blueprint for us to know more about how we handle stress, what our physiological makeup is like in terms of, you know, do I have a weaker digestive system? Um, am I more prone to anxiety or depression? And that kind of gives us the forecast for our life. Tell me more. <laughs> to continue on, our imbalance is what happens when we have too much of something. So if I ha- I use this example a lot because I feel like it really rings true, it, c- it can become really visceral for people, is that if you imagine like a super hot day and you're sitting outside in the sun at the hottest time of day, normally you wouldn't choose to have like maybe a hot spicy soup or like a hot drink. But if you just imagine that that were the case and that you were wearing a very heavy coat, and you had an electronic device, let's say your phone in your hand and you were using it or your laptop on your lap and you were using it and it was also emitting heat, you have all of these different contributing factors that are making you hotter or they're increasing the fire element. And to me, when I think of that, like, oh, eating spicy soup outside in the sun and I'm covered up, you know, I'm getting really hot and I'm also getting irritable. And so the idea is that when we accumulate something of a similar quality in this case it's heat we then experience an imbalance and that's what we call our vicar
0: i can remember sarah and i have known each other for a couple of years now and i can remember i've had this for so long because sarah pointed out that i am the fire is that pitta it is, it's, yes. <laughs> and I was like, really? She was so right on, people, so right on. And I was talking to you about how for years now, I have sometimes just had like burning feet. And I've, I've been like, is this, a, is this an allergic reaction? What's going on here? But it makes so much sense to me now when you explained it, that I'm primarily fire and if I'm not cooling my system, then that's the kind of reaction I'm likely to see in a physical form as well.
1: Right. And I think we can kind of understand that in a basic way, like we can imagine a, a pepper There's a spicy food, and when we eat it, we feel warmer. But we also have to understand that things like our emotions can also produce those different things. So, you know, I always tell people, if you were to draw a picture of a cartoon character that was angry, what would it look like? And it often looks like the personification of fire. So... Yeah. So all of those mental and emotional things that we experience also contribute to different things, whether that be something that's heating or cooling or light versus heavy um, or like sharp versus dull, we experience it in different ways.
0: So interesting to me. We've kind of talked about the Peta constitution. How did you frame it up? It wasn't a constitution. Yes, that's right. (laughs) right.
1: Okay. So we've kind of talked about
0: the Peta constitution a little bit. Can we touch a little bit more on the
1: other two? Sure. So just to kind of refresh the the all three, you have Vata, which is made of ether and air. And the Vata constitution tends to be, I had a teacher tell me that it's like S- Kramer from Seinfeld. <laughs> and that resonates with me because I'm a big Seinfeld fan. And you think of Kramer and he's really active. He He's really spontaneous. He moves around a lot. He doesn't have a lot of grounding practices he doesn't have a lot of consistency in his day that is like air it moves around all the time and so our creative people are often air doshas or the vata dosha then we have pitta which is fire or we say it's fire and water and what the fire element brings is more of an awareness to goals and expectations and organization and planning and preparing And that, I don't have a really great uh, person to compare that to. Well, if we were using Seinfeld characters, that's a little bit more like Jerry (laughs) (laughs) because he's kind of a neat freak, but that's a little bit more like our type A personality. And then we have kapha, which is water and earth. And the kapha dosha is our really grounded dosha. So it's the one that's If you think of someone that's really stable in your life and we often make the comparison of like a grandmother like someone who's just there to nurture you and is really compassionate and is really concerned about your well-being probably even more so than their own well-being and is just just like a really steady force in your life
0: i love that um we just pointed out there everyone that sarah absolutely picked up very quickly that i am totally a type a type personality (laughs) (laughs) i love it Can we talk more about nature and how important it is for us to live in these natural rhythms? I assume that's got a lot to do with like the circadian
1: rhythm. Absolutely. Ayurveda has what we call the Ayurvedic clock. And the Ayurvedic clock actually assigns different doshas to different periods throughout the day. And what that tells us is what physiological strengths we have or mental strengths we have. And that very much parallels the circadian clock or our circadian rhythms. For example, our digestive system is strongest between 10 and two during the day. So that means that our lunch should actually be our biggest meal and that it's easier for us to digest things around that noon hour If we eat a bigger meal, which most of us eat our biggest meal for dinner, we have a light lunch. If we eat a lot for dinner, our digestive system isn't as strong. So the likelihood of us processing it isn't, it's not as likely. So that's what the Ayurvedic clock talks about. Things like that, just like the circadian clock does. But I think that what's most important to note about this is that we have gotten so far away from this because we don't have to rely on nature for anything. So if you could imagine if we were living at a time where we didn't have technology and we couldn't import or export food, we would really be living within nature. But what happens now today is we basically have everything at our fingertips. We can access things at different times. We don't have to abide by nature at all. And so we've really lost touch with that natural cycle of things or our circadian or our ayurvedic clock
0: so you would say that like hypothetically we didn't have all of modern technology allowing us to live however we damn well please that we would be potentially sleeping more in winter would we be eating differently all of those
1: things all of those things because if we couldn't turn on lights we'd be really limited in the activities that we could do and yeah like if we you know the sun goes down earlier in the winter and we would naturally have more of a hibernating uh, quality about us in the winter and now we don't have to do that we can stay up as late as we want we can turn on devices we can turn on lights we can do anything and the same is true with food Seasonally, seasonal eating is really important within the system. And the reason why is that nature provides what is balancing to us during each season. So in the summertime, the food that is native to our region, so I'm talking, it wasn't brought in from another area is going to create a more cooling quality for us. And the same would be true in the winter we have things that they last longer. You think of like nuts and seeds that have fallen off of trees and they're on the ground, which we could pick up. They last throughout the entire winter. And the same is true for things like root vegetables. They just have a longer storage time. So if we were eating those things, um, you know, not eating like watermelon in the winter, which we can because we can get it. Right. Because it came from the other side of the world on an airplane. Exactly. We would just be so much healthier because we'd be balancing the things that we need for each season. So is it fair to
0: say that we should also be slowing down a little bit in the cooler months and expect to have more energy in the
1: summer or does it not quite work like that? It exactly works like that. And Really, if you ask me, everyone should be slowing down even more, including myself. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Our current day and
0: age is just nuts.
1: I think the whole world just could take a deep breath. (laughs) For sure. Maybe we should arrange that like a (laughs) deep collective world breath. (laughs) Can we do a worldwide deep breath moment? (laughs) But yes. So one thing that we, again, like we don't consider because we have everything, we can access anything is that as nature cycles, we also have cycles and that having downtime in the winter gives us more of that energetic burst in the spring, which means that when it's nice outside, we have more energy to exercise. We shed any extra weight that we healthily gained in the winter. And that kind of cycle is really important. And it's just like, if you think of our mental cycles that You can't be hyper focused on one task during the entire day and expect to have the same kind of effectiveness or productivity. You have to take a break. Well, our entire system is like that.
0: That's so interesting to me because I feel like often people take their time out in summer and then they're just like, go, 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 you know, a vacation break or whatever. And then through winter, we're all just working like busy little beavers these days, never actually taking that time to slow down like nature would have had us do.
1: It's so true. And I think the more you practice seasonal routines and seasonal rituals, the more you understand that, and I can think that this past winter, I was really embracing this feeling of just kind of slowing down and and looking back throughout the year and just kind of it, it, it appreciating everything that happened throughout the year as if it was like, and that has such a good feeling to it. And then you start the year over and you get to to not redo everything but you get a fresh start right and then you work throughout the year and again at the end of the year you can can sit and kind of like bask in the rewards (laughs) of your efforts
0: oh we've got so far away from this and it seems so logical like it doesn't seem it seems natural like we're talking about but yet i just how many people live this way now Ah, so talking a little bit more about the daily rhythms, I assume, like you said, the best time to eat is in the middle of the day. I assume that is for everyone. There is no one that wouldn't benefit from having their biggest meal in the middle of the day. I'm only fixated on this point because my husband has been like trying to teach me this for the over 10 years we've been together. And I finally feel like I'm starting to eat my biggest
1: meal in the day at lunchtime (laughs) now. And he's so happy
0: that I've stopped trying to overfeed him
1: at dinner time every night. Yes, Everyone. So there are practices that everyone can adopt that, and there will always be a few exceptions here and there, but there are definitely some underlying principles and practices that everyone can abide by, such as, you know, eating their biggest meal for lunch. Like you mentioned, I'm so happy that you're doing that.
0: I just had, you know, it's lunchtime now people. And I just had a massive meal and I'm sitting here all like satiated and just
1: happy. (laughs) It feels great. I had a discussion with a friend of mine who leads teacher trainings and she was saying she eats a really hearty breakfast and then she has a really big lunch and then she has a light dinner. And what she noticed is that a lot of her students aren't doing that and that they're like fading during the afternoon. And it's really because they're just kind of like picking and snacking throughout the day instead of having like three really, uh, like really well-rounded meals with their biggest meal being lunch. So it's really there to provide energy for us. And the other things that we can really look at that are okay for everyone to adopt are things like going to bed at the same time, getting up at the same time, and preferably that's as coordinated with the sun as possible. We have More of a creative tendency in the afternoon, and we have more ability to focus between like 10 and 2, but then also during the morning hours, we feel more grounded. So it's easier for us to concentrate on different projects at that time, too. I have to
0: admit, I do not feel like I am really ready to start like work, work, like client work, and things until 10 a.m. So I am hearing you on this. Mm -hmm.
1: And if you're like me around 2 o'clock, I start to get a little loopy. And it's much harder for me to focus. And one thing I think when we learn about this and we learn about this clock is that if I already know myself that I get a little bit loopy and it's a harder for me to concentrate in the afternoon, but I'm trying to do these tasks that require all of this concentration, I'm just gonna get mad at myself and I'm gonna be frustrated. But if I already know this in advance, then I can plan my day so that I don't feel that way in the afternoon. And then I can kind of just organize like, okay, my creative tasks are going to be in the afternoon, or this is going to be the time of day that don't require a lot of really heavy thinking. And then it just feels so much better.
0: Totally makes sense. I feel like, yeah, after three o'clock, I'm not much use either. I get another peak at night. Is that because I'm just like, I've trained myself that way because I'm thinking that's probably not that natural,
1: Well, most people will feel like they have a peak around 10 p.m.
0: Interesting.
1: And the reason for that is that the pitta time of day, so if you remember I said that pitta people, they like to be productive. And I said that the pitta time of day is also great for concentrating, so between 10 and 2 during the day, Mm -hmm. but also between 10 and 2 at night. Oh my
0: gosh. Mm -hmm. So is this,
1: can this lead to insomnia and Pitta types? Yeah. So if you're starting a project at 10 o'clock because you feel like I do my best work after 10, that's actually considered misuse of Pitta energy. And the reason why is that Other pitta functions are supposed to be taking place during that time, like liver function, for example, like really strongly um, our body's natural detoxification process is happening. And if we're choosing to use that time to work on something instead of sleep so that our body can naturally restore, then we're missing out on an important process.
0: Oh my gosh, this is so fascinating. I feel like it's all just kind of coming into this beautiful hole that makes so much sense. So we're literally stealing energy away from our other processes that need to happen in our physical bodies.
1: It's true. I think everyone would admit that you, no matter how much you think you can multitask, I don't think that there's anyone that is really, truly good at multitasking. And our physiology is the same. They've got research that
0: shows you can't multitask. Now, I was talking about that with one of my clients this morning before this call, because I literally cannot hold a conversation and book a client session at the same time in my diary. It's pretty funny.
1: (laughs) I can't either.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And if you can, yeah, I'm I'm not convinced. I want to talk about your brand newly released book, the Ayurvedic self-care handbook. Can you just give us a little bit of an overview of what this book is about and what it's like?
1: Sure. I wanted to create this book so that the people that I was already seeing would have the resource in their hand, but then also for people that I've never met before, that they would have an exposure to some of the things that I'm talking about, such as creating your day based on Ayurveda and the cycles of nature. And the premise for this really started when I was noticing that the people that were the healthiest in my practice were not the ones that were eating all the superfoods and doing all the exercises. It was the people that were, um, it was the people that had more consistency in their day. They always ate breakfast at the same time. They always ate lunch at the same time. They ate dinner at the same time. And in Ayurveda, there's something called dinacharya. And what Dinacharya is, is our daily routine. And I started thinking, you know, this Dinacharya is a foundational concept. And if we're just looking at how can we change our diet and how can we use herbs to heal, but we're not really looking at this foundational concept, then we're really missing out on something. And so I started to look at the people that had these sporadic days that were eating the superfoods and they were exercising as you know, were suggested, but they weren't healthy, I started to work with their routine. And what I found is when we implemented that first and foremost, all of the other practices, whether it is a change in diet or adding herbal therapies, everything else was much more beneficial and much more effective. And so in my book, that's essentially what I'm getting at is that I first discuss the foundations of Ayurveda. I talk about the importance of routine and how that fits within Ayurvedic practice and also within Western medicine via circadian medicine. I talk a lot about when it's difficult for us to uphold our routines and different daily rituals and what that can mean for us and how we can overcome that. And I give a lot of examples of daily routine, nightly routines, seasonal routines. And then lastly, for many just common conditions that I've seen in my practice, I give an overview of what that means from an Ayurvedic perspective, and then also sample rituals that people can do to get themselves on track for healing.
0: So, so awesome. I mean, there is so much value in that book. Wow. So talking about those rituals or routines, can you share some that you've included in the book? For
1: sure. My favorite things are actually more of the basic things from an Ayurvedic routine, like tongue cleaning. It's one of my favorite things. Um, This is a practice where you use a tongue cleaner, not the back of your not the back of a spoon, not your toothbrush. <laughs> they do put the like little like uh,
0: plasticky bits on the back of toothbrushes now, yeah. don't they? <laughs> yeah. So no, so we need a proper you tongue an cleaner. use an actual
1: tongue cleaner.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: Use a tongue cleaner that is, it's a U shape, and it's so much more effective at cleaning your tongue, and you want to do it gently. The reason why this is important is that you can look and see what has accumulated on your tongue throughout the night. A good way to think about this is our body's natural detoxification process takes place during the night. And if you want to think of it as janitors, like sweeping things off of the floor and sort of pushing them to the outer edges, we wake up with sleep in our eye, you might have to blow your nose, you might feel like you have an oily residue on your skin. But another thing that happens is we get accumulation of just like a coating on our tongue. So by cleaning your tongue, it's not just a hygienic practice. It's actually telling you what's happening in your digestive tract.
0: Do we need to go to an Ayurvedic practitioner to learn what is happening
1: in our digestive tract after cleaning (laughs) our tongue? Well, I would say if you notice that you're always scraping something off of your tongue, you probably are not digesting and eliminating your food very well. That's because so, yeah. that's because I, I was too busy working
0: at night, right? Rather than letting my food <laughs> right.
1: Or you ate a really big lunch or really big uh, dinner, right? Oh,
0: so your body doesn't have time yeah. to process it. Yeah. Fascinating. Okay, so tongue cleaning. We should be cleaning our tongue in the morning. And is there anything else you can?
1: Yes. Dry brushing is another really wonderful practice, and especially dry brushing coupled with a practice we, called, we call Abhyanga, which is a daily oil massage. Dry brushing is a practice of using either a dry brush or something called Garshana gloves, which are dry, uh, they're raw silk gloves, which are used to gently exfoliate your skin and to also help with circulation and to move lymphatic fluid. And we should be doing this daily? Should be doing it daily. There are cases where you wouldn't do this, but most people can adopt this practice. And you would do this prior to showering, and you would also do it prior to oiling. Now, oiling or abhyanga is done in a way where you warm oil and you apply it to your entire body and you leave it on for up to 20 minutes. And that's a long time, so an abbreviated practice is just fine. But if you're dry brushing, you're removing all of the dead skin cells, that then once you apply the oil, your body can absorb directly the oil. And you do this before you shower, and it'll soak into your skin. And then in the shower, you're just basically rinsing off any last little residue of that oil. And that also carries dirt away from your body as well. I need to do
0: this. I swear that was also, it came up in my conversation with Guru Jagat when we were talking kundalini. I swear that's in her book as well, kundalini yoga.
1: I would imagine it's because yoga, as the sister science of Ayurveda, yeah, a lot of yogis will adopt some of these daily practices as well. What kind of oil should we be using for something like that? The oil is dependent upon your constitution or your state of imbalance. Usually when we talk about oil in Ayurveda, which we talk about oil a lot in Ayurveda, we're usually talking about sesame oil, but sesame oil has a heating quality. So For someone like you, who has more natural heating qualities. Yeah,
0: like like last (laughs) night I woke up and I'm like, when you were talking about detoxification, I'm like, I am like such a like sweaty kid in bed. I was like, that's obviously me detoxing. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. So if you were to use sesame oil, it might actually create an imbalance for you because it could create too much internal heat. So it really depends on your dosha. Uh, Something that you could start with is jojoba oil. And I mentioned that because it's relatively neutral in terms of heating and cooling. And it's said to be the oil that matches most closely our skin's sebum. And so that way it absorbs a little bit easier and it won't feel like like you have that heavy oil on your skin.
0: I actually did get some jojoba oil after you recommended that after some of my surgeries and I am loving it good. What I do like about it is I feel like there's so many fancy oils out there and jojoba oil did not cost me like a billion (laughs) dollars (laughs) either.
1: Right. Yeah. And you know, some of those fancy oils are really nice. You don't have to invest a lot. And that's something that I really emphasize in my book is that these are things that many of us can just adopt. We don't have to have a lot of fancy stuff to carry them out. And that's really important to me because I feel like self-care these days is really becoming, um, for the privileged only. And, you know, it doesn't cost a lot just to pick up an oil. It's like a cooking oil, mm-hmm. jojoba oil, you don't cook with, but if you're using sesame oil or olive oil, you can use all of those things. And so it's not this great investment. But you could use an oil that has herbs infused into it or it has a a different, you know, like a nicer smell because of essential oils, and that's also fine. But you can start with something really simple.
0: I've got some questions that I ask everyone, Sarah. These are a bit more personal, and hopefully they'll uh, help us get to know you a little bit better. Are you ready for them? Hmm? Are you a morning person or a night person? I feel like I know the answer to this
1: one now, probably from (laughs) our whole conversation. Oh, I kind of want to know, what do you think I am?
0: Well, I'm thinking you're not up at 1am in the middle of the night.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm not. I am totally a morning person. I love to get up at like 5 or 5.30 and I go for a walk every morning. I'm usually out walking by like 6 o'clock every day. I go for just like a few miles walk, which helps me just to feel like I'm getting ready for the day. But morning is my thing. I love the morning.
0: What is on your bedside table at the moment? Do you know? Is it a copy of your new book?
1: Have you it got them all cop- around your house? <laughs> I did take a photo recently, like lying on copies of my book, but...
0: <laughs> it was just a photo, right? You're not actually <laughs> that was sleeping on a photo, on your That book. wasn't reality.
1: <laughs> I am relatively minimal and I don't like to have things sitting around. So the only thing that's on my bedside table is my sunrise clock, which is a clock that it slowly increases light instead of sounding an alarm right away. So it mimics the sunrise. So you can wake to what feels like the natural sunrise.
0: I was going to ask you about that earlier in the interview and it just like slipped away, but I was gonna ask if those
1: are a good idea. Obviously. I think they're great. And for me, especially in in my living space, I don't have any windows in my bedroom. And I feel like that having that clock is really great for me because as it's mimicking the sun, my body then matches more of what our actual natural cycles are.
0: That makes sense. I need to look into one of these and saying that I do have a lot of uh, natural light in my bedroom, so maybe I'm okay. Do you have a favorite, like if you were to frame it as a self-care activity, do you have a favorite one? Do you have one that you use perhaps just when you need an extra boost? Because I feel like you live your whole life in a very, you know, considered manner. So would you call that a self-care lifestyle?
1: My favorite activity, which I mentioned is, is walking. Um, anytime I feel like I need to decompress or prepare for something, clear my mind, I always go out for a walk, even if it's just like a loop around the block. I don't know what it is about walking, but there's, there's like solitude within it and, um, it's physical. So if I feel like I need something to, to process something physically and mentally at the same time, it's the perfect activity for me.
0: Is there an element of moving our body that is really healthy at moving energy?
1: Yes. I'm going to give you kind of an elaborate answer, and hopefully I can be clear in this answer. There are five different movements of energy within Ayurveda, and I'll say them quickly. They're in and down, up and out, down and out, linear, which is like, a linear movement around the center of our body and then a circulating from our heart out to our extremities. These are movements of energy, but they're also physical. So if you think of in and down, it's like inhaling or swallowing. You think of up and out, it's coughing, sneezing, talking, exhaling, burping, vomiting. You have down and out, which is like elimination, urination, menstruation. You have linear, which is about Assimilation absorption the breaking down of food and then you have our our circulating which is like the circulation of all fluids and things like blood from our heart outward and because there's an energetic side to that and a physical side you can do different practices to specifically invoke a certain kind of energy so to give you a quick example if I'm feeling anxious And I feel like in my world, and I think that most people would agree, anxiety has kind of an upward feeling, right? We don't think of feeling heavy when we're anxious. So knowing that, I want to practice something that gives me a downward action, a downward Mm, feeling. The opposite energy. The opposite energy. Yeah. So. In, in a yoga practice, that might be doing things that release our outer hips. There's a yoga posture called malasana, which is like a deep squat. Um, you might just lie on your back. Things that get you closer to the earth.
0: You know, having done this podcast now for a while, I just love the similarities that come through from so many different points of worldview. Because we spoke about anxiety in my podcast with Ariane Smith, and he talked about how one of the things that helps him so much with his anxiety is that feeling of wrapping up in a ball. And it's just exactly that kind of thing that you're talking about of that like downward, that downward right. energy.
1: Right, right. And there is a yoga posture that we call apanasana. And apana is the downward moving energy. And asana, of course, means posture. So apanasana is a downward moving energy posture. And it is when you lie on your back and bring your knees to your chest.
0: <laughs> oh, my gosh. Loving yeah. it. Loving it. Okay. So we can move energy in our bodies in a certain way through movement. Got mm-hmm. Which is for really sure. what yoga probably is. But thank you for explaining that further. Slight, slight digression, but I feel like it was an important one. Is there a book, Sarah, that has touched you at an important point in your life or one that really sticks with you as being a, a life-changing book?
1: I love a book called Light on Life by BKS Iyengar. He I would say currently isn't necessarily revered as like the most um, ethical person. Um he has kind of a reputation for being fierce. He's a um a really well-known yoga teacher. But that book for some reason was you know I might have just read it at the right time. If I went back to read it now, I'm not really sure that it would resonate with me just as the same way. But there was something about that that really helped me to understand a little bit more about me and my path in life. I also really love a book and I I hate that I'm forgetting the author's name, especially since I'm a new author. <laughs> <laughs> ah! There's a book called Quiet have you read that?
0: It's by Susan Kane, isn't it? I
1: wanted to say Susan. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think it's by Susan Kane.
1: So I really love that book because I am a shy person, but I've been able to overcome some of that and I'm also introverted and I've been able to overcome some of that just by forcing myself out of my comfort zone. But naturally, I am shy and I would always choose the option to stay at home versus go to a party. And reading that book was really important to me because I've had friends and just other people say, you know, just get over it. Like you're shy, like just go up and talk to that person. And I just thought I can't like, I really feel like I physically can't do it. And so reading that book and learning more about that side of myself really made me feel like, hey, you know, there's nothing wrong with me. (laughs) Well, there might be something wrong with me, but it's not that. (laughs) No,
0: but like it really is a normal disposition. Yeah. Yeah. I know what you mean. What is a life lesson that took a long while for you to learn, or perhaps you're
1: still learning? There are so many lifelong lessons. And I have been asked this question before, and I think I might give a different answer on every time I'm asked. It's really knowing when to to kind of push through something and when to reel back because my natural tendency is just to kind of push and that's a lesson for me because you know we talked about resting in the winter and being more active in the summer and in terms of my my tendency I'm more like summer year round and I just kind of want to go 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 instead of sitting back and just looking back and going, Hey, I did a great job or, you know, I think I should take a break. So that's a long, I think that will be a life lesson forever. The
0: one you'll (laughs) always be learning and playing with, toying with. (laughs) What is one thing in your day you can't do without? Obviously the tongue cleaning. Is there anything else?
1: I have to have a meditation practice and It doesn't have to be as formal as sitting on the floor in a specific shape, but I have to have a time where I intentionally stop, close my eyes, breathe really mindfully for even if it's just a few minutes. I have to have that. I I feel like I get overstimulated really easily. And I know f- myself that when I feel that way, I don't have as much patience with other people. I don't have as much patience with myself. So taking that moment just to stop everything is, is essential for me every single day.
0: How would you describe the soul? You are asking some deep questions. I know, the last two are a little bit, <laughs> but I was going to warn you. And then I was like, no, I'm just yeah. going to throw them at air. How would you describe the soul, Sarah?
1: Well, I would describe our soul as our true self. And that it's sort of what we're always trying to come back to. It's our authenticity and it's us being genuine. And it's also how we connect with other people.
0: Oh, we speak to each other's souls. Yeah, that's so good. Okay, the next TV question, but it's the last one. (laughs) Besides, it's the last one of this little set. What does fulfillment mean to you?
1: Fulfillment? Means not being overfull and it means being happy. So it's the ability to feed my soul with the things that I really need and the things that make me feel nurtured, but to not do it in a way where I'm feeling it's excessive. So good.
0: Not to feel overfull, right? Living life without the excess in every sense of the word. Oh, Okay, so those are the hard questions. Now (laughs) I just have one more to wrap up the podcast. This has been so much fun. If you could leave the listeners with something today, what would that thought or idea be?
1: I would recommend taking time to savor transitions, to stop before you start another activity to stop before you go to bed and close the day to take a moment before you transition in the morning to really pay attention to those times that are in between things that was
0: Sarah Kucera the author of the Ayurveda self-care handbook brand newly released book And it really is a stunning manual that you will refer back to again and again. You can find that over on Amazon or you can head to her website, sarahkusera.com. Sarah is also the owner of the Sage Center for Healing Arts in Kansas City. So if you have the luxury of being close, you can literally go in and see her. It's really great to be back. I feel so good about being back on the podcast. Your notes and your reviews, honestly, they mean so very much. And I have received a number of notes over the last few months about how much Here to Thrive has impacted your lives. Thank you. Honestly, that is why I do this. This is a labor of love. And to know that it is helping you and making your lives better absolutely touches my heart. So until next time... I just want you to keep thriving, beautiful people, and I'll be back very soon.